This morning, I want us to look at an unshakable faith. Stand with me as we read from Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. This is God's word. If you let it, it will change your life. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, these are your words. Drive them deep into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and even into our very strength. May all of who we are reflect your words. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God has brought us into his presence. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the two mountains, Mount Sinai, where God's presence brought fear to his people as they saw firsthand the devastation caused by their own sinfulness. The images of fire and smoke, the sounds of thunder, the shaking of the earth were physical realities that pointed to the spiritual reality that when we come before God, we should come with fear. Not fear that is unhealthy, but fear that recognizes just who God is and just who we are. They, they were on shaky ground physically and spiritually at Mount Sinai. Their sins put them at odds with the God who was leading them, the one who had taken them out of Egypt, who had redeemed them from the house of slavery and who was guiding them through to the promised land. And by the way, that's not just true of them. It's also true of us. All of us are sinners too alienated from God and subject to his just wrath, our sin puts us directly in the line of fire of God's justice. We're guilty. We deserve the full punishment under the law. That's what Mount Sinai showed us. But we also beheld Mount Zion, the place where God's presence doesn't bring us to fear so much as to peace. The God who is rightly offended and who calls for justice out of his own being is the same God who declares over us that your sins are forgiven. We are redeemed and reconciled. And the difference between the two mountains, the valley, if you will, that, will, that runs between them, the river of life between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is Jesus Christ himself. Verse 24 is not one we read. That's kind of where the last, uh, the, the last sermon a couple weeks ago before Father's Day, that, that, that sermon ended on verse 24. But I want us to remember what it says because, uh, and, and this is a Bible study tip. If you read a couple of verses at a time or you read a little bit here or a little bit there or a little bit there 
and you don't really read through, you're kind of missing the point. All of the Bible books are meant to be read through. Some of them, like Haggai, two chapters, pretty easy to read through at once. Some of them, like the Psalms, well, you're not going to read all 150 Psalms at one time. But they're all meant to be read through. And so when we, when we, when we, when we approach a sermon in a, a, a sermon on a specific biblical text, we can't just go through the entire book at one time, unless it's a book that's very short. We have to kind of break it up. And so I want us to remember where we were so that we can understand where we're going. Verse 24, and to Jesus, remember he's talking about you not coming to something physical on earth, to Mount Sinai. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to a spiritual place. And as you've come there, you've come to the place where God is inhabiting. And as you as you come to this place, you also come to Jesus. And let's just face it, we need to come to Jesus, don't we? <laughs> this culture needs to come to Jesus. And to Jesus, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word at Sinai was a word of requirement. God entered into covenant with his people. And the means of doing that was establishing the law. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on into the commandments and various other aspects of law. Who he is determines the way that we ought to respond to him. And Mount Sinai gives us that required response. I am God, so this is how you're going to act. These are the things you're going to do. This is what you're going to be because of who I am. The first covenant places us, places all men in a place of accountability. And we aren't able, and so it brings us to account. Every man in every generation fails to uphold God's law. Pursue false gods, oppress the vulnerable, cheat at trade, move boundary stones, charge exorbitant fees to those who need help, lie, complain, even murder. In fact, that's what he's talking about when he talks about the blood of Abel. You remember Cain and Abel are brothers. They both bring a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's, but he rejects Cain's. And Cain gets angry, real angry. God even has to warn him, hey, don't be angry. If you do good, will you not be accepted? But Cain can't get past that anger. So he goes out in the field with Abel and kills him. When God approaches Cain, he says something that I find particularly striking. Genesis 4.10, and the Lord said, what have you done? Now remember, he asked Cain, where's your brother? And, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? So this is God's response. What have you done? You know, sometimes God asks a question and he knows the answer. Y'all ever do that? You ever ask someone a question and you already know the answer? You're just seeing if they're going to admit it. (laughs) What have you done? God already knows what's happened. Listen, he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood gave a word. It was shed in anger and sin. And so it cried out for justice for retribution against the guilty. And there was nowhere for Cain to hide. He was guilty. He deserved punishment. The blood was a witness to his fault and his guilt. 
But Abel's blood doesn't have the last word. If Abel's blood had the last word, boy, we'd all be in trouble. If Abel's blood had the last word, we would be hopelessly lost without any kind of prayer. No chance whatsoever. But Abel's blood is not the last word because Christ's blood also has something to say. Like Abel, Jesus was also killed. And like Abel, Jesus did not deserve death. But his word doesn't speak of justice required. It speaks of justice acquired. It speaks of reconciliation with God. Our sins separate us from God and they cause us to be guilty. We deserve death. We deserve judgment for our sins. But Jesus' blood interjects on our behalf. That's why after considering all of the effects of sin in his own life, in Romans chapter 7, Paul then changes course completely in 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ's blood has spoken a better word. Even though I want to do things and I can't seem to do them, and even though I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I feel torn apart over it, there's no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. His blood satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus even says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I love how Spurgeon put it. Paraphrasing him, he said, any him who comes. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter all the things you've done. It doesn't matter that you've gone far away from God for years and years and years. It doesn't matter that you're on your deathbed. It doesn't matter how late in the game it is. Whoever comes. What a great salvation God has given us. And you might wonder, well, why are we going through all this? I mean, we already know the gospel. We already know, we've already accepted Jesus. Why do we keep reiterating this? Because if you ever grow too old for the gospel, then you're just too old. The fact is the gospel is what empowers all of the Christian life. It's not just the start. It's the start and it's the journey and it's the end. It all comes down to Christ. And when we think that we are too old and too mature in the Christian life for the gospel, then we just are foolish. We're deceiving ourselves. We need that gospel just as much today as we needed it yesterday, and we'll need it even more tomorrow. There's a danger that lurks here. There's a danger, and it's especially prevalent in the church house, in the sanctuary, in the cathedral. There's a trap door that we we got to be very careful to avoid. I promise it's not under any of your seats. Just relax. But there is a trap. See, the temptation for some is to hear all this and say, yeah, 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 I, I agree with all that. Yeah, I already know that that's true. And even though they know it's true, and even though they might give lip service, and they may even say things like, I'm just trying to follow God. In reality, they're still on the broad way that leads to, to destruction. See, you can know the way to heaven and still not get in. You can hear the call and even answer, yes, Lord, and still not follow through. Remember Jesus' parable of the wise builder and the foolish builder, both build a house. One built house on the rock and it stayed in the storm. One built his house on the sand and it fell apart, collapsed. What was the difference that Jesus said between those two men? They both heard his words. Both the wise man and the foolish man both heard what Jesus said. 
He says, if anyone hears my words and does them, that's who's wise. But anyone hears my words and does not do them, he's the one that's foolish. The difference ain't the hearing, it's the doing. Both hear, only the wise man does. James put it very simple, faith without works is dead. Very simple. If you have the kind of faith that does not result in works, you have a shakable faith. Your faith is subject to destruction. But you say, but I believe. I know that it's true. And so do demons. <laughs> they don't act on that truth, do they? What about you? You see, you can hear so many sermons that you can preach them yourself and still be going to hell. Elias Keek found that out the hard way. Benjamin Keek, his father, was a great, well-known minister in England. Elias was a troublemaker. So Elias got uh, a collar from his father, went to America, and pretended to be a minister. Well, sure enough, there's plenty of places where people are gathering to worship, and, and in America, uh, not everybody could find a pastor. And so here's a guy with a collar that comes up and says, says, I'm a minister. And the church was like, great, you preach. And he starts to preach. And he gets mostly through the sermon before he starts to get convicted he had stolen one of his father's sermons, heard it so many times he could say it on his own. But somehow, mostly through it, somehow he comes to realize, I'm lost. And he got saved while he was preaching. <laughs> I bet the next sermon was a lot better now that, now that he knew Jesus. You can, you can do all the good works you want to do and still be as lost as a city boy in the bayou because it's not about just doing works. It's about having authentic faith. That's the danger that we read in verse 25. See to it. Some versions put it. Some just say see. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We must be very careful not to refuse Christ. And of course, that also means not refusing the Father and not refusing the Spirit either. You know, some people refuse to listen in one ear, out the other. I don't know anybody like that. Some refuse to do anything about it. I'll hear you out, but I'm not, I'm not going to do what you tell me. Some just neglect. I'll get, I'll get to that later. I don't have time for that right now. We'll, we'll, I'll deal with that in a little while. Or hey, let me, let me finish this. And they neglect it. They, they, just, they don't do it immediately. Or they don't do it fully. They, they start it and then stop it. I don't know anyone like that either. Oh, I've already done that. I've already walked the aisle. I've already gotten baptized. I've already, I've already come to church. You know, I'm actually good. I, 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 don't, I don't need anybody to save me. Some people put it. I don't, I don't need that religion stuff. I'm doing fine. I'm all right. Some people hear it and they think, well, gospel, that, that's antiquated. That's, isn't, that, isn't that something that's obsolete now? I mean, don't we know more in science and can do all kinds of things? And, and you can believe in miracles if you want to, but I've never seen one. So why would I... People refuse in all sorts of ways. Some just fill their time up with stuff. You ever known anyone that was too busy? You ever been anyone that was too busy? I got all this stuff I've got to do, and they're not even listening. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm glad that's not me. I always follow God. Well, maybe not always, but, you know, I follow God as much as I can. I'm good. I do better than them. <laughs> man, have you seen that Jim Basil guy, man? I'm so much better than... That, that's the kind of stuff some people do. But even that's a refusal, isn't it? When God calls us 
And God has called every single one of us. Whether you're called to vocational ministry or whether you're just called to live life with Christ, God has called every single one of us. We must make sure we're listening. We better not refuse him. Having an unshakable faith in part means that we're obedient to God's commands. We hear them and we do them. Interestingly, when Jesus said, follow me to disciples, you know what they did? Bible says immediately. It uses that with several disciples. A couple of them are efficient. Jesus says, follow me. They drop their nets immediately and they follow him. There's other people that Jesus says, follow me, and they make excuses. That They'll never get an unshakable faith like that. The unshakable faith comes when you actually do what God tells you. Now, does that mean that, well, I, I, I fail. Sometimes I don't do what God wants me to do, and sometimes I sin, so I must not have good enough faith. Not necessarily. We're all, we all sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God. But what do you do after that? Do you wallow around in self-pity? Do you say, hey, this ain't so bad. I'll just keep living like this. Or do you come in repentance and ask God to help you be stronger next time? The reason you, that obedience produces the unshakable faith is because when you obey, you see just how faithful God is. And by the way, the Israelites knew firsthand. Look at 25 again. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? The Israelites heard the commands of God through Moses, warning them, this is the law. And yet by the end of 40 days on Mount Sinai, they've got a golden calf that they're worshiping. And God's very first two commandments are no other gods and no graven images. And they start right at the top of the list. And look what happened to them. They wandered around because two of them said, let's go in and conquer the land, forget the giants, God will take care of it. And 10 of them said, no, they're too big, they're too great. Man, the land's a beautiful land, but man, I don't know about these people that live here. How are we gonna conquer them? And all of Israel said, well, I guess we're not going then. They refused the one who was speaking. And the only two that made it into the promised land were the two saying, let's go. All the rest of them died in the wilderness. You see, the lack of obedience cost them greatly. How much more does it cost us? If we reject the word spoken by Christ, the word of repentance and faith, of grace, of mercy, of justice fulfilled, if we reject that word, man, we've got a heavy price to pay. We better make sure we don't find out how expensive it is. Don't refuse Christ. Verse 26, he continues, at that time, back, back on Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The presence of God was so awe-filled, the earth beneath them quaked at Mount Sinai. But there's coming a day when it ain't just Mount Sinai that's going to shake. There's coming a day when God brings judgment. He talks about this shaking of the earth uh, over in Haggai chapter 2. Darius is a Persian king. He's now allowed people to come in back to their homeland. He's, he's issued a decree. Jews can go back to Jerusalem. It's around 520, give or take a couple years. And the Israelites are having a hard go of it back home. Those that went back home are having a hard time. The crops aren't growing like they should. 
Man, they go, they go to reap the harvest and the harvest is only about half full. God tells them why. He says, you're not doing, you're, you're care, you care about your stuff. You care about your house and you've, you've built up your place and you've done all the things for you, but you've neglected me in the process. They weren't, God wasn't just mad because they hadn't built a temple. God was mad because they weren't pursuing him. They were too worried about their own creature comforts and needs. Now, should you care about your own needs? Yes. But should you do so exclusively and not care about God in the process? No. God's the one who provides for your needs. Now, that doesn't mean you just sit around and wait for God to make food magically appear on your table, all cooked and ready to go. It's not how that works. But if you don't show concern for God, well, sometimes God has to remind you. So God calls them to rebuild the temple. And then they do obey. They finally feared God the right way. And because they feared God, they actually follow his command. Some people, though, look at that new temple and they say, oh, I remember Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was so much bigger. All the gold plated and, and, and all the metals glistening in the sunlight. All of the, the beautiful, ornate things along the walls. The, the thing that the lampstand with its pomegranates and calyxes. The, the, the altar of bronze shimmering in the sunlight. That was a glorious temple. But this, this isn't nearly as good. This quote in verse 26 is a promise from God to those people. I know it looks like not much. I know you're looking at this new temple and you're thinking it's nowhere near as good as Solomon's is going to be. But don't you worry, because there's coming a day of judgment. When I judge the world, I'm going to shake the earth and the heavens and I'm going to bring more glory to this house than what Solomon's house had. When God shakes the heavens and the earth, some things just won't make it. Look at 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. One day, your money won't be worth anything. Right? We're going. That, that's pretty soon. One day, your house won't matter. Your job will be obsolete. Hang on long enough, everything you have will be gone. You can't take it with you. By the way, how much of what you're pursuing will last? Are you storing up treasures around here and neglecting the treasures that do last? God's going to shake things up. How much of yours will remain? We need to be careful to listen and obey Christ's calling. Second, look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Having an unshakable faith means giving thanks for God's provision. You, you ever stop and think about how much God has done for you? Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Just in the verses before this, the section we read two weeks ago, listen to, listen to everything that they have been brought to. The author says that we have been brought to. We've been brought to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've been brought to innumerable angels having a parade and festal gathering, the text says. We've been brought to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We've been brought to God, the judge of all. We've been brought to the spirits of the righteous that have been made perfect. 
We've been brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's so much to give thanks for just in this list. So give thanks, show gratitude. You see, the more we recognize God's blessings, the more we praise him for his good works. Guess what happens? Our faith becomes stronger. It becomes unshakable. So in those times when God shakes the heavens and the earth and all the other things that don't last fall apart and fall away, you'll have a faith that remains firm because you've got a good anchor in the bedrock of ages. No matter how hopeless it may seem, you'll have a faith that'll last. Just like lifting weights makes an athlete more competitive, showing gratitude to God exercises the spiritual muscles and makes us better able to run our race with endurance. There's another response that's in the back half of 28. You see, having an unshakable faith also means having awe for God's glory. Not only do we praise God for what he's done, what he's done in us and through us and for us, we also recognize God's splendor and we give him our all through worship. 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When we truly see God's glory on display in our lives, it should drive us to our knees in worship and in adoration. In fact, the word that's used here for reverence refers to a type of fear that always, always, results in obedience. It's not just enough to believe. It's not just enough to assent with the brain and agree. No, it takes more than that. Unshakable faith brings us before the throne of grace with praise on our lips. The more we worship, the more God reveals himself, the more he shapes us into his image. You really want an unshakable faith? Put God in his rightful place. Verse 29 for our God is a consuming fire. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. Three things in the Bible. God is described as being, but he's not named that. You know, oftentimes God gets a new name when he does something. Jehovah Jireh or El Elyon, El Shaddai. Names like that reflect the things that God has done. And, and, and you give him a new name sometimes because of what he's done has been so meaningful for you that you relate to God in a completely different way afterwards. But there's three things that it says about God in the scripture that he's not named. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. Or God is a consuming fire. He does not let evil go unpunished. Just as sure as I'm standing before you, God will judge both good and evil, both right and wrong, both believer and non-believer. Are you rejecting the one who's speaking? I don't, I don't care. You don't have to accept me. But Christ is speaking. Are you refusing him? Are you, are you withholding praise? Are you taking what he does for granted? You need an unshakable faith. You need a faith that's going to last. You need a faith that puts you in awe and wonder at what he's done. A faith that drives you to thankfulness for all things. A faith that is obedient to every command. That's a faith that can't be shaken. And that's the kind of faith God wants you to have today. Pray with me. This is your time. This is your, uh, your service, God. We serve you. 
That's why we call this a worship service, because through worship, we seek to serve you. And through the reading of your word and, and, and contemplating what you have said, we learn how to serve you better. We learn how to know you better. So, Father, I pray that this morning we would have an unshakable faith, a faith that doesn't rest in our works, a faith that doesn't rest in who we are or who we want ourselves to, to be, a faith that does not rest in the people around us, no matter how good they may be. We want a faith that is secure for all eternity, and that only comes through you. So God, give us a faith that is unshakable, that obeys your commands, that is grateful for your provisions, that stands in awe of your glory. Give us a faith that will not be shaken. Do your will in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.